Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right. Uh, We've had some intermittent thunderstorms through this weekend, and uh, you know how much I love that mood and aesthetic. That's true. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, thank you. So today we are covering an appeal Mm. from one of our listeners uh, looking to have us potentially re-rank a movie on the list. So this comes to us from listener and patron of the night, Nicholas Harold. Uh, So thank you, Nicholas, for submitting this. Uh, And he says that he was inspired to finally write this after hearing our Jekyll and Hyde appeal episode. Uh, So love hearing how these appeal episodes inspire other appeals. Mm. So Nicholas writes, this is something that my partner and I had talked about a while ago since the show inspired us to watch more old horror movies together. Excellent. Love that. When you did the Dracula episode, you recommended that Creatures of the Night watch the movie with the Philip Glass soundtrack. I agree that that's the best way to watch the movie, but I think it gives the movie an unfair advantage. It adds tension and momentum to the scenes that don't have much of either in the original film. I know that there's the push and pull of how we can and how we do watch older movies, um, especially with silent movies being released on home video, getting new scores. But those movies were intended by their makers to be watched with musical accompaniment. Todd Browning, Carl Lemley, and everyone else on the production side of Dracula intended for the only music to be the Swan Lake excerpt at the beginning and end. And Philip Glass specifically is such a modernist composer that his score sounds nothing like what a period-appropriate Dracula score would sound like if it had one. It's a little like judging Metropolis by the version with Pat Benatar songs. Um, I assume you get that reference, Ben? Yes. Okay. I don't, but um, you're the Metropolis. He's he's referring to the Marauder version of Metropolis, yeah. That was released in the um, 80s that had all kinds of like modern pop music and stuff on it. Okay. Uh, So Nicholas concludes, um, I don't think Dracula is a bad movie, but I think there needs to be more space between it and the 1931 Frankenstein. Frankenstein is so much better at maintaining suspense and mood throughout the whole, even with the comedy relief Baron, than Dracula is. And the two movies were basically made back to back. So I propose shuffling Dracula down the list a little bit, somewhere between The Wolfman at 27 and Nosferatu at 35. Frankly, I think Nosferatu is better than Dracula, but I know that you guys have had that conversation before and think otherwise, uh, and I'm willing to not push my luck. Hmm. So thanks, Nicholas. Uh, you actually signed your email as Nick, so I will refer to you as Nick going forward. Um, thanks, Nick. Really appreciate you writing in. And if any other creatures of the night wish to write in for an appeal or otherwise, you can reach us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. So the 1931 Dracula, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, that's episode 24. That is so long ago now. Oh, my goodness. Um, And it's currently ranked at number 22 Mm -hmm. underneath I Married a Monster from Outer Space and above Night of the Demon. So there's a few things to talk about Mm -hmm. with this appeal. 
but the the primary conversation point here is the Philip Glass score. And, you know, I will admit it's been a long time since I've watched Dracula without that score. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically always watch it with that score. And I actually um, grew up watching it with that score because the VHS tape we had of it had that score. The DVD that we own, you can turn it on or off. I basically always watch it with it on. And I do understand the basis of Nick's appeal here, which is that that score greatly improves the movie, in my opinion. And that's why I always recommend people watch it with that score. And so, you know, is that coloring our judgment of it unfairly, given that that score is not original Mm -hmm. to the movie? I would say that, yes, it does color our enjoyment of the film. There's no way that it would not Mm -hmm. do so. Can you remind me if Spanish Dracula has a score? No. No? Yeah, it it is similarly scored to the Lugosi version, which is basically just to say that there's a little bit of music at the start, there's a little bit of music at the end. James Whale's Frankenstein is the same way. Yeah, I think this is really... A good appeal, honestly, Um, because when we talk about Dracula, we often comment on the way it's filmed like a stage play for Mm -hmm. the most part. There are some dynamic scenes, particularly when we are at the castle, Mm -hmm. um, when we are at the boat, basically before we get to England. Um, But there are some scenes in England that have a bit more of a dynamic feel to it, particularly the scene where Dracula and Van Helsing have a little bit of a a confrontation. But the music really does help the tension during those Presidium-style shots. Yeah, absolutely. And I will cop to the fact that, like, watching Dracula with the Philip Glass score tends to go against my normal film snobby instincts on movies, which is like, I want to see the original movie. I want to see the... The way it was originally intended. Right, exactly. I want to see the theatrical cut of Star Wars, right, before the CGI. I want to see a silent film with its proper tinting. I really like it when I see a silent film where they've like dredged up what the original score maybe played at the premiere was. Like you can get that for Nosferatu and for Metropolis. You can hear them with the original scores that were written for them and would have been played live at the premiere. I, you know, prefer that generally. There are movies that I prefer the director's cut for, but that's normally in a condition of like, directorial intent where control was taken away things like that um and generally speaking you know we review as much as we can the original versions of a film right we watched gojira we didn't watch godzilla king of the monsters Mm -hmm. but nick also slides into one of the gray zones on this which is silent films where silent films would have a live accompaniment And that would change from theater to theater. It would not be standardized. Like I said, you might have a film where a score was composed for the premiere. And maybe even simplified versions of that score sent out to large cities 
But by the time you're in smaller cities, out in the rural areas, you just got a guy on an organ doing his best. I feel like we have to add a caveat here that Dracula isn't a silent film. Right. Yes. And I, I, am, I will get to that. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to point out that silent films are a interesting comparison point because of the topic of like, well, when you watch a movie, an old movie on home video, right? Like... When do you cross the line to, oh, you're no longer representing the film as originally intended, right? Obviously, silent films were intended to have musical accompaniment. So how much does it matter what that accompaniment is like? Should you be striving for authenticity in that accompaniment? Nick brings up the idea that, like, Philip Glass is a very modernist composer, which is extremely true. No music for Dracula, if it had been composed in 1931, would sound like what Philip Glass composed for that movie. No, they would go for things that, like, in the Hall of the Mountain King or something, something that has, like, a spooky atmosphere to it, but definitely, like, a a classic, you know? Mm. Yeah, and, like, I don't know if you would even really get a lot of violin. I mean, obviously, like, it's a string quartet in Philip Glass's score, and it's, like, not like violins or new instruments, but um, in terms of like, you know, I'm thinking about the King Kong score mm. from 1933, a couple years later, which is a really big pioneer in the use of scores for sound films. Um, there's like wall-to-wall music in that movie, practically. Um, but it's very like kind of horns section dominated, I feel like. You mean like brass? Yeah. Cool. I can't think of what it sounds like, so. I don't know if, like, they would have used a lot of violin in the way that Philip Glass does, because the association of violins with horror comes mostly from... Psycho? Psycho, exactly. Mm. And, you know, before that, we've got other instruments that are associated with horror, right? So, So it's like... When I watch a silent movie and I'm trying to find a good score for a silent movie on home video, I try usually to go for something that feels period appropriate. There are, though, still a couple of exceptions to that, one of which I will bring up is The Phantom Carriage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different scores available for The Phantom Carriage that have been composed for it. Um, As far as I know, there isn't like an original Um, There's even two on the Criterion release. One of those two, I think, has a more traditional sound, but I always watch it with the more modernist score, um, which is the way I first saw Phantom Carriage, and I think was a score made for the Criterion version. I could be wrong on that. And makes the movie really, really spooky. That's like the only score you've heard on it so okay. you would know that one um, but it has a very like modernist sound as well so there's a lot of wiggle room here and coming back to the idea of you know well Dracula isn't a silent film right so does that th- do those arguments apply right mm. Dracula was weird because it came out in 1931 and it came out right at the end of the silent era And you had a director in Todd Browning who was more comfortable with silent film, had been working in silent film for a long time, wasn't a sound director. The difference between him and James Whale uh, was that James Whale was a stage play director who is being brought on to film. And Todd Browning was a film director filming a stage play. 
That's really interesting to think about because of the way that Frankenstein is not shot proscenium. Right. You know? It the way that it's shot very dynamic. It, it has a lot of locations. The camera goes. I don't think there's any extreme close-ups. Maybe with like hands, but um, you know, you have a variety of shot lengths. Or I think of like the first shot that the monster's in, yeah. where it does that cut, 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 and it's zoomed in yeah. on each time closer to his face. Like that's a very dynamic cinematic moment. Dracula has a lot of really good moving camera. Uh, even though we think of it as being this proscenium style film, you're right that more of it is towards the start when we're in Transylvania. But I also always think of that crane shot when we first see the sanitarium where we see like the sign and we dip under it and then we go through the courtyard and then up to yeah. Renfield's room. So what I wanted to say about this is that Dracula was released to some theaters in a silent version. Because there were, by 1931, there were still some theaters that didn't have mm-hmm. sound equipment put in. And so there are uh, prints of Dracula that are silent prints. And you had theaters that still were equipped with organs for if a silent film came in. You had the weirdos like Charlie Chaplin who were still making silent films, you know, into the 30s. <laughs> um, we just call those hipsters, Ben. <laughs> mm. And so... Something that I would love to do more research into is like, were there theaters that had the sound version of Dracula that still had like an organist Mm. accompanying it? Because it's like what people are used to as well. Well, and, you know, it's like you have to ask yourself because you see it in early sound films. Why don't these early sound films have scores? Like, why isn't it until 1933 that we start to really see, like, score accompaniment? If I had to guess, it would likely be due to the quality of um, the sound equipment Mm. and getting the mix right to not have the music overpower the the voice, like the narration. I think you're totally bang on with that, given how difficult it can be to maybe, like, sometimes listen to those early sound films, like kind of have to strain to make out what people are saying sometimes yeah and even thinking of king kong which has this big bombastic score for the most part the score comes in when people aren't talking Mm -hmm. and when people are talking it goes away and dracula is a very talky kind of movie yeah even thinking with king kong like a lot of the moments where there's action like the dinosaur running towards the camera for example where we can hear people shouting like oh shit but like it's not dialogue and yeah it's not meant to be like oh what did they say is that important to the plot yeah yeah exactly (laughs) um another thing that i think about is how long did it take the studios to realize that they should be responsible for the score because for so long, you it just wasn't in the pipeline of things that you needed to care about. It was like, yeah, I put the movie out there and then there's an organist in the theater and the theater is going to take care of the musical accompaniment. Sure. I don't have to think about that. And so, Except for those very special releases of like the premiere, as we've, we've talked about. Right. Um, and not all movies got you know, the custom written score for the premiere of the movie thing. Like that happened to like certain releases and not all. And I think about like, is there no score in Dracula because Universal thought that an organist would still accompany it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point 
Do you know if they would have thought that with Frankenstein as well? I, I like they they came out months apart yeah. in the same year, right? So you have to kind of assume that what was true for one is true for another. That said, motion pictures moved really quickly mm-hmm. back then. We know that Frankenstein was made because Dracula was successful. So it's not like they were in production at the same time. So you have a case where one movie definitely learned from the other movie, right? But there are also examples that we have like uh, The Man Who Laughs Mm -hmm. from 1928, also Universal, that is a like sound silent sort of hybrid movie where for the most part all the dialogues on title cards except for like crowd scenes where there's like some random yelling and then it has that one song yeah well yes it has a one song that's like a song with lyrics yeah but it does have a score yeah it has recognizable music right so the fact that it has a score in dracula doesn't might pop a bubble in my like nobody was thinking about making any music for it kind of thing little quick pin in that though is the Man Who Laughs wasn't uh, uh, this newfangled horror idea, right? Mm. Like it was, hence why it's on the, um, well, the horror adjacent, because it's more of a novel adaptation, almost period piece, rather than a horror movie. They were really taking a risk with Dracula. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there's a lot of like, ifs, ands, buts here. We don't really know. That all said... Frankenstein is higher on the list than Dracula already. So what Nick's bringing up here is just the idea that there should be a greater amount of space, that Dracula should be lower than it already is. Um, Bringing up the idea that it should be lower than Wolfman, um, not going so far as to say it should be lower than Nosferatu, though I, I, I totally think that's like a fair opinion for someone to have, for someone to prefer Nosferatu to Dracula. Yeah, there's some moments that I prefer in Nosferatu. And the question really becomes the things that we like about Dracula, the atmosphere of that movie, the sort of way that it has a kind of subtle horror to it. Do those things go away without the score? Do, you know, does subtlety become boring? And does the stuff where, like, does atmosphere just become dead air? Um, do you know how much do we lose from the movie without the score? Do the things that we like about it still apply? I think so. Um, I think the acting from Bella Lugosi, from Dwight Fry, even Edward Sloan really still hold up. Um, even what's her face who plays Mina, I think Helen Chandler. Yeah, I think, you know, that's still there. David Manners is always going to bring the movie <laughs> down no matter what. Um, but I think, you know, there's still the effort for the set design and um, the, the tension that is built between the characters based on blocking and shadows. Uh, so I think there's still something there. The other thing to compare this movie to is, you know, if we're thinking about comparison to contemporaries, is The Mummy which yeah. is basically just Dracula again, but in Egypt with Karloff instead of Lugosi. And we've got the mummy like way down. Um, mm. The mummy's down at 155, which feels really low to me. Well, okay. Quick pause. 
How long is the whole list? Uh, 2.38. Mm-hmm. So it's still, um, it's a little past halfway now, but what did you say? 155? 155, yeah. That's like 65% down. Yeah, that that's that's feeling low to me. Um, and I know our main thing against The Mummy was kind of that it was boring. And that's the big critique I always hear people say about the Lugosi Dracula. Sure. Um, but part of the reason why The Mummy is boring is because it has a very powerful but very short prelude. And then it tries to map the Dracula plot line to something that doesn't quite fit it. There's also the fact that it does follow the Dracula beats so exactly that, you know, there's a big feeling of like, well, we've seen this already, Mm -hmm. which isn't true of the Lugosi Dracula. The only way you've seen something like this is either if you saw the play or you saw like a bootleg 16 mil copy of Nosferatu somewhere, (laughs) right? In which case, I would love to have met that person. Right. That person who's just like such a Dracula diehard in like 1931. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So like a lot of what Dracula was doing was new um, and it's not by the time you get to the mummy. And they do both have very good preludes. Dracula's lasts longer. I've often heard the argument that Dracula is best in the sections that don't have dialogue. There's Mm. less dialogue in the Transylvania scenes, which makes sense because those weren't in the play. And the thing about long stretches without dialogue is without the Philip Glass score, they're long stretches without dialogue or without music. So it's just silence. And I can see how that could be like really difficult for someone watching it in a modern day setting and I'm I'm curious about, you know, what an audience would have felt back then if it was just silence in the theater. Is that effective tension? Can you hear a pin drop in that theater or is everyone just munching their popcorn? Well, it did well enough that Universal chucked a whole bunch more money into horror. Yeah, yeah. Like made horror their deal for a while. So I think it was effective. Mm-hmm. At the time. Yeah, you have to assume, right? So if we were to move Dracula down, the question becomes like, how far down do you want to move it? So Nick is suggesting between 27, the Wolfman, and Nosferatu at 35. I don't know how I feel about this area. Well, for one thing, it's a little tough because there's a lot of sci-fi horror in here. So it's Mm. a little tough to compare that to this more like... I'll say like traditional, like supernatural gothic horror. You've got the Wolfman at 27 and then you've got Return of the Vampire, another Lugosi vampire movie at 33. And then you've got Camera Dr. Caligari, 34, Nosferatu, 35. I don't think Dracula should go below 33, the Return of the Vampire, because that is like no name Dracula. Mm. Like they're basically saying it's Dracula, but it's not. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's just not fair to put Dracula below that. Um, but honestly, I, I'm quite happy with where Dracula is. My problem is that I like Dracula better than the Wolfman at the end of the day. It's just, and that might have to do with my preference in horror. Yeah. Like I really like a quiet, subtle, spooky horror. I am much 
more of a fan of things like the shot of Lucy in the dark at the park, just moving through the shadows of the trees and the shots of, you know, Lugosi walking slowly towards the camera with his stare and Renfield sneaking around in the background and things like that. And these, these long shots of these crypts. Um, I'm much more of a fan of that to the Wolfman, which is talky in a way like Dracula is, but is a little bit more uh, blunt about stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as subtle. It's it's a little more um, blunt, like the uh, handle of a silver cane. Sure, sure. <laughs> and there's just I've just never I love. Cheney's performance as Larry Talbot, it gets better in the sequels, in my opinion. I've just never really been able to get into Jack Pierce's Wolfman design. Well, right above the Wolfman is Fairman Maria. Yeah, and that's actually tougher because Fairman Maria does have atmosphere and tension, and it also has the social themes that we really like. Um, Whereas, like, Dracula just has what social themes are left over from like the book that have survived the play version into the film. Version. Yeah, exactly. The, the adaptation telephone game. And that social theme is lock up your ladies because immigrants going to steal them, which is like not great, of course. So, you know, Fairman Maria's social theme of like, you can't escape the Nazis is obviously way more powerful We've also got movies like Murders in the Zoo, Macabre, and Night of the Demon. And I think Dracula's better than Macabre. Yeah, I think uh, part of why Macabre is this high is because of the, like, oh, if you die in the theater, we'll pay for your funeral. Yeah, it's the first William Castle gimmick movie. Yeah, and then Night of the Demon is this high because of the atmosphere, but also the special effects that were going on. Mm-hmm. So why is Dracula better than Night of the Demon if we aren't, if we're trying to think of Dracula silent? On a very high level, Dracula is a supernatural being that you obviously can't control and he's going to come for you. Night of the Demon is about, yeah, if you dabble in the supernatural, you'll, you're going to get fucked. But if you don't dabble, you're just fine. Mm. I see what you mean. Like, it's not, you know, Mina or Lucy's fault that Dracula shows up. Like, you've just been targeted. Yeah. I get kind of what you're saying there. What is worse? Dracula's rubber bats on a fishing line or Night of the Demon's, like, giant, massive, like demon that kind of like walks forward but is clearly on wheels listen i like both (laughs) uh the rubber bats have a soft spot in my heart um they're also doing a lot in dracula without special effects sure like they are accomplishing a lot Mm -hmm. uh just with like dracula coming out of the coffin the way he does the fog and mist are doing a lot of work in dracula Yeah. For sure. Like Dracula is the movie where you're like, oh, this is why Universal thought they needed to just pump gallons of dry ice onto the set of every movie after this. Yeah. 
Um, whereas I really appreciate the efforts of Night of the Demon as well. I mm-hmm. think it's like a really cool thing for them to try to do. Yeah, because with Night of the Demon, there was a lot of disagreement over like showing the demon, right? Yeah. Um, and there's an argument to be made that like the demon that gets shown is hokey. And there's also an argument to be made that the demon that gets shown is like iconic. It's badass is what it is. <laughs> TBH. I will say, I feel like Dracula and Fairman Maria are a bit more of an even head to head to the point where I'd be comfortable moving Dracula to be below Fairman Maria, but only if we take a look at Murders in the Zoo. Yeah, you've talked to before about wanting to do a bit of a rethink on Murders in the Zoo because you think it's been ranked too highly because of the very visceral reaction you had seeing it the first time. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about it, honestly. Um, I'm not going to say, um, looking back, I think I overreacted. Like, I think I reacted in the way that it wanted me to. Sure. Um, but the balance of the horror to comedy, I think is something that I, I should have better considered with it. So, um, because if, if we move Dracula down, then Murders in the Zoo is above Dracula. And I feel like that's almost unacceptable. I would agree there. I think the thing about Murders in the Zoo is that like the balance of horror to comedy is not just like out of whack because it feels like it's 50-50. But then it's almost like the horror is so horrifying because it's trying to like then overcompensate. Like the thing about Murders in the Zoo is it's got like some really shocking gruesome horrific shit in it and so it's like is the stuff so horrific because they're trying to balance out the comedy or is there so much of the comedy because they're really hedging their bets on how horrible they're making the horror yeah that's it's a weird artifact i tell you yeah i don't think it's as bad of a disparity of those two genres as say murders in the room morgue Mm, where you honestly feel like you get whiplash. Um, so I think it's better integrated, but if I had to, like if, if we're looking at moving murders in the zoo during this appeal, um, I would suggest we move it to around the one hundreds, like, uh, below the houses, maybe, um, there's night monster at one Oh two, I probably would not go below Murders in the Room or get number 128, but Dr. X is right at 125 as well. That's really drastic. I think that at a certain point, we have to limit ourselves to moving just one movie at a time because otherwise we're going to get into this horrible place where we start relitigating the whole list and the house of cards comes crumbling down. And one of the things that I find happens to me is... There's a difference between my memory of a movie and what stands out in my mind remembering a movie versus like, you know, my visceral reaction having just seen it. Yeah. And that's why it's often important to me that like we try to do the ranking as close to when we have seen the movie as possible. Um, I know you prefer like to have some time to think about it. And there are certainly like, I think movies in the future where we're going to need to have that time to think about it. And sometimes our schedules just don't allow for recording immediately after. But um, I just tend to find that like you remember the most powerful things 
from a movie in the long term. You know, the things that stick out to you about that movie are the things that probably hit you the strongest the first time. But other stuff fades and it's hard to, you know, think about like where should this movie go in relation to that. And there's, you know, also the reason like there's a reason why we do the show in chronological order um, so that we aren't like trying to kind of judge apples to oranges too much. This is going to get to be a weirder and weirder problem as the list goes on, right? Yeah. One of the things that's going to happen is we're going to start judging like 80s movies that are full of blood and gore versus like 30s movies that are full of like atmosphere. And it's going to be like, well, what? Um, (laughs) So I, I really think we should just stick to moving Dracula and go one at a time because I think there's a slippery slope where we just start relitigating everything and so as much as i agree with you that like i would also be okay with moving dracula to below ferryman maria if murders in the zoo also got moved down but we didn't get an appeal for murders in the zoo and i just don't want to like open that pandora's box of like changing around like three or four films when we do these appeals as it stands, if I'm just looking at where I want to move Dracula to, I'm happy with Dracula where it is. I think the most I would do is maybe put it below Night of the Demon, but I think I like Dracula better because at the end of the day, as cool as the ideas in Night of the Demon are, I'm not like the biggest fan of the characters mm, that's in fair. that movie. And I much prefer the characters in Dracula. They're all way more interesting, with the exception of Jonathan Harker, of course. And so, like... But with the right person playing him, it can work. Uh, I am a uh, pro-Keanu Reeves, Jonathan Harker um, (laughs) person. Uh, I am am a big fan of Tumblr's recent rediscovery of Jonathan Harker through the Dracula Daily stuff. Oh, yes. So I'm on the Dracula Daily, like email list so i i'm i'm reading it every time i i get it in my inbox and i do love like what i am going to call the reese darbyfication of jonathan harker on tumblr i i think that's an inaccurate term but i agree with where you're coming from i see um and i think that i don't think keanu reeves gives the best performance of his career in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. But I do think that he sort of hits Jonathan Harker's core, like lovable puppy dog level of stupidity. Yeah. Um, whereas David Manners is just cardboard. Yeah. Or like at best, like this, guy trying to mansplain his girlfriend out of being a vampire victim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we anyways, got off topic. Here. We got off topic. Uh, I like the characters in Dracula more than Night of the Demon. I think that, uh, you know, Renfield and Van Helsing are super interesting and have always really intrigued me. Like, I don't think movies about Van Helsing or Renfield are good ideas but I can understand why people keep trying to make them. And it's because of the performances in this movie. Like Dwight Fry is the reason anyone gives a shit about Renfield. Yeah. 
So what I'm hearing from you is that we're keeping Dracula where it is. Mm-hmm. We are also keeping Murders in the Zoo mm-hmm. where it is. Yeah. Listeners, like, if you want to send in an official appeal of Murders in the Zoo, it sounds like Sarah is, like, itching to reconsider that film's place on the list. Um, but yes, I am going to stay kind of firm on one movie at a time because of the way that the list is built, where I think if you start yeah, pulling it's threads. Like, exactly. Pulling the thread of a sweater and suddenly it's all gone. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, Dracula will remain at number 22 on the list, but Thank you, Nick, for getting in touch with us. This has been a really good discussion. I think the best way to put more space between Dracula and Frankenstein is for us to watch more movies that are better than Dracula, but not as good as Frankenstein. Well, we might be coming up on that next week. Um, Because uh, speaking of Nick Harold, he also let us know that we missed a film in 1958 called Lake of the Dead. Yeah, so I had um, never heard of this movie. Mm -hmm. So, like, Nick was saying, you know, it's December of 1958, so he kind of thought it was coming up next. And then I was like, actually, we're going to 1959 unless there's something I missed. And Nick was like, you (laughs) missed this. He, like, frantically was like, wait, guys. (laughs) And um, the reason we missed this was just, frankly, I'd never heard of it. Um, So, apparently, it's on Tubi. So, it's easy to watch. It's Norwegian. Um, Nick describes it as kind of being like a Scooby-Doo mystery. Yeah. Um, I did a little bit of digging and it sounds like it's based off of a novel that sounds like it's more a mystery thriller, but the movie, it sounds like it takes it more into a supernatural horror point of view. Um, in either case, it is apparently a big Norwegian film. Yeah. And we don't have anything from Norway yet on the list. So I think it's worth watching for the sake of watching it and you know if it's not horror we just don't rank it yeah um similarly uh we got an email from someone about the silent film faust yes so this was um i guess you could call it an appeal um from david healy uh an appeal for faust from 1926 to be considered to go onto the list so faust which is murnau is definitely a German silent film. It definitely has supernatural elements. It definitely has spooky supernatural elements because there are devils involved. And it definitely has a visual style that could be considered to be expressionistic. And so it sort of, for me, falls under the umbrella of like when people just call any German expressionist silent film horror. Um, And there's tons of examples of that. Uh, Like, folks, Waxworks, not a horror movie. Anyways... I always have felt that Faust isn't really horror, um, that it's more, to my mind, supernatural fantasy, but you've never seen it. This is true. And I've been wanting to watch it with you for a long time. I keep sort of suggesting it as a movie for us to watch, and we end up usually watching something else. And so this might just be a good excuse (laughs) to get you to watch the movie, and then, you know... There's the fact that, like, I have an opinion that I don't think this movie is horror, but you'd get to weigh in on that as well. And maybe we end up putting it on the list. Maybe we don't. Maybe it's just an excuse to watch an old F.W. Murnau uh, silent film with really good special effects 
So I think we should do Lake of the Dead, uh, as suggested by Nick, close out 1958. Then we can hit up Faust as like a palate cleanser. And then we can dive into 1959 because the first film on our docket for 1959 is going to be the house on haunted hill oh. from william castle oh yes <laughs> and that's gonna Just be that's gonna be a whole thing wow oh, so, so good yeah i don't mind sort of taking a bit more of a deep breath before that plunge fair enough um well next week folks uh we will be back from norway and we also have our bonus horror adjacent episode coming up on uh the 1950s hound of the baskervilles um and that will be coming out at the end of the month so stay tuned for that as well see you then creatures of the night bye bye Bye.